You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. Today, we've got Kulveer Tagar, who's the CEO and co-founder at Zeus, which is a new flexible way to rent. He's got Wi-Fi, utilities, furniture, all the things they take care of, and they make it easy to live wherever, whenever. So, Kulveer, welcome. How's it going, man? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Eric. How are you? Doing well, thanks. I first saw your your startup, if you want to call it that. I know you guys have raised over eighty one million bucks, but I, I first saw it and I was like, "Oh, this is amazing!" I, I got to talk to Colvier, see what see what he's got going on because not only do you have an amazing business going on right now, but you sold your business before this at age twenty four for for how much? Was it five million bucks? Yeah, it was five million. Yeah, got it. Cool, good deal. So maybe let's start there. Let's start with your your journey there. So, you know, what led to you starting that first company and then selling at twenty four? And what age did you start at? The quick context is I, I didn't really grow up wanting to be an entrepreneur. I didn't even really think it was an option. I, I sort of stumbled into banking. People had told me it was a good industry to go into. My original motivation was I wanted financial security for my family. So I grew up in a single parent household and you know someone had said finance was the right thing. And when I got to university, there was an entrepreneurs club that had just been started. And I was like, oh, wait a second, you can actually start a company. You don't have to just go and work for people. And it was also something I stumbled into. My first idea was a marketplace for college students to trade textbooks and, you know, all the things that you need during college and probably don't want to buy brand new. And so I started that and then, you know, it it was working. We spread to over half the universities in England. And then I discovered Y Combinator, applied to Y Combinator, and that was late 2006, and then got in and basically moved to San Francisco. And I was lucky enough that through university and this entrepreneurs club, I had some exposure to Silicon Valley and this world of startups. And just like, man, that seems like where all the action's happening. I got to get there one way or the other. So January 2007, uh, I was 23 at the time. I think I basically just packed my bags and came out here. It was the fourth ever batch of Y Combinator. And then we, we pivoted the idea a little bit. We actually ended up building something similar to Shopify, but we were building it on the eBay platform. So just tools for people who run, you know, e-commerce businesses to help them do it better. And then a year later, we had an acquisition offer from a Canadian public company that was big in e-commerce. And so at that point, you know, after considering everything, I was like, yeah, let's do this because, you know, it's a nice sort of early victory. I I took the money and I, I ended up buying a house for my mom and my sister, and that's where they live now. And it was a crazy journey kind of looking back, didn't really know what we were doing that much, it feels like. But Y Combinator was a great help. And then, you know, we were lucky enough to be able to sell the company. Got it. Amazing. So, and then is is this new company part of YC or no? Actually, it is. Yeah. I did Y Combinator a second time. And so, yeah, we are also a YC company. Got it. Good deal. Yeah. We've had a handful of of YC founders on on this one. So can can you talk about maybe speak to the benefits of of YC a a little bit just so, because I want people to understand how strong, you know, a network can be. Yeah. I mean, it's changed over time. I think in the early days, Y Combinator, the great thing about it was they were truly were founder friendly. So Paul Graham, who who was one of the co-founders of Y Combinator, he just had this hunch that if I back kind of, I'm just going to call them the underdogs, like, you know, students, hackers, and I don't know, previously venture capitalists used to like investing in, I don't know, MBAs and you know, more experienced people. So so the first thing he had going for him was that he built this loyalty with founders. My first startup came very close to failing. And then he just said, he's like, 
don't worry about it, Kulveer. Here's another 50,000. Start your next company. And coming from a non-entrepreneurial culture in England, I was like, wait, that's how it works? I was kind of mind blown. So early on, it was that. Then over time, I think one of the things they did really well was just they built a community. And then the founder network ended up becoming, I think, the biggest asset. So if you're starting a company now and if you're in the Y Combinator world, often you can get your earliest customers from other startups, sometimes in your batch or just the wider community. And so especially if you're doing a B2B startup, often your earliest customers can just be other founders in the batch. And then now, obviously, the network is so big. There's a huge database of you know, founders asking questions, solutions. You know, Y Combinator has this investor database where you can look up every investor that's invested in a Y Combinator company and you can see a grading and reviews. So it really is like a huge help. And it's just been amazing to see their growth. Got it. Amazing. So I want to talk about Zeus. I'm, I'm looking at this, this site right now. Um, how is this different than like an Airbnb as an example? The big difference is, you know, Airbnb is a pure marketplace. Anyone can list and book on there. We're much more of an operator ourselves. So we're vertically integrated. So, you know, we'll design our homes, we price them, we manage them and so on. And Airbnb for us is, we think of them more as a channel. And actually they are investors in Zeus as well. They really like what we're doing. So I think, you know, it's a difference between, you know, a hotel company and like a hotel booking website kind of a thing. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the the biggest one. Although, you know, even this past summer, as we were working through the pandemic, we added some third-party inventory into our platform. And so we started scaling in more of a marketplace manner as well. Got it. That makes sense. Great. So can you walk us through kind of the, the business model? I mean, how do you guys make money? Simply residents book a Zeus unit, and then they'll pay us to rent a home for a few months. And then we pay out some of that revenue to our real estate partners who, you know, which is where we're sourcing the the supply from. And then we have our like variable running costs just to run the homes and, and support that. But quite simply, it's residents pay us to live in our homes. Got it. Awesome. And so I'm looking at some numbers over here. So a hundred plus employees and 81 million in funding and the, the industry, you set your sights on capturing the $18 billion corporate housing industry. So what other numbers can you share around the business? Are you comfortable sharing? Again, when I started this business, I was building a lot of the product that I wanted to use. And I've moved countries four times and I've had like terrible renting experiences. You have to sign a 12 or 24 month lease and so on. So I I definitely had this huge vision around the whole rental market. We started off focusing on more corporate housing or B2B travel just because it was a nice way to constrain the problem. And, you know, if you sign up a company once, they'll keep sending people to you. So Facebook is one of our larger customers. In terms of other numbers, I mean, we're approaching 4,000 listings on the platform. We're in 30 plus markets. We've done over 150 million in revenue. And we've pretty much had product market fit since we started. And we've grown three to four X year over year since 2016, with the exception of 2020 when the pandemic hit. And then it was, we, we still ended up growing, but given the world we were in, we weren't able to grow basically. Got it. Okay. So what do you think is the, the long-term vision for this business? And yeah, let's just start with that. I want to create a world where it really is easy for someone to say, I want to live in this location for this amount of time and it just works. And, and they, they would book with Zeus and they'll have a pretty much a turnkey provisioned home. In the pandemic, I got to go visit my family in British Columbia. 
for three months and I haven't spent that much time in my with my family since before I went to university and it was just so nice to be a part of their lives for a bit you know I'm very close to my nieces and I've had friends in New York for example who've had good opportunities come up in the Bay Area but then they don't make the move just because the friction of finding a place to live is is just so much and buying furniture and all of that so my belief is that a lot of human happiness is like tied into your location and a, hum, a lot of human potential is tied into your location. And if we can actually just make it easy for, for someone to be like, okay, well, yeah, maybe I want to go to Miami for a few months or, you know, I want to go to Europe or, or Asia. We just want to make that mobility like really, really easy for people and, and just, you know, take the stress out of, you know, having to find a, a place to live and, and like dealing with landlords and bad property managers and all of that. Got it. Okay. You sold the last, the first company at 24. How old are you right now? I'm old. I'm 37. 37 is not old at all. <laughs> um, and so, and then how many employees do you guys have now? Uh, we're at about a hundred. Okay. Got it. Yeah. How do you think you've evolved as a founder from 24 to 37 first company to this one? Like what did you have to do differently? The big one for me is just the motivation. So as I mentioned, my first company, I did have this mindset of like, I want to make money. I just wanted some financial security. I realized that money is actually kind of a poor motivator for your startup because so much stuff goes wrong that if money was the only thing that you were, you know, the reason that you got into the game, it's just way, way harder. If you're a little bit more mission driven and so it's like, no, I really want to solve this problem. I want this product to live in the world. I think it's just easier to overcome all of the challenges. You gain experience, you understand what's important in a startup, what's not important. I think sometimes it's easy to get distracted by like the trappings of success, like, you know, the big fundraising announcement that you make or like hiring lots of employees or getting a swanky office. And I'm guilty. I've done all of that. And now I, I just have this mindset of like, I just have one job to do and that's build a great business. And the way I do that is by making customers really happy and everything else is like, doesn't matter. Got it. I'm looking at your background too. So you went to Oxford, you studied politics, philosophy, and economics. Philosophy sticks out to me because I remember, I think it was Mark Cuban that said, you know, if there's one thing people should study, it's philosophy, right? So do you think that played a role and do you continue to study philosophy? No, I don't study it now. I'm a casual reader these days around the topic, but I think at university, what I remember was one of the first papers I did was logic. And at that time, I was like, whoa, like this is how you build arguments and you can find inconsistencies. And one of my professors used to say that studying philosophy, one of the big benefits was it becomes much harder to like be bullshitted, <laughs> um, uh, part of my language. And so I just think it helps you refine your thinking analytically just to like, I don't know, be a lot more thorough in your arguments and consistent in your arguments and maybe un uncover inconsistencies in other things. And so, you know, when you're making a business plan and you're talking to customers, et cetera, it, it just helps your uh, mental agility and your mental sharpness. Got it. Love it. So this is kind of how I'm interpreting Zeus right now versus like an Airbnb, because I actually did go to Miami for a month and ended up staying at a hotel, which was super expensive. And then, you know, it was not the best hotel I'd want to stay at, right? You know, it's not yeah. like a four seasons, we'll put it that way. Yeah. And so very expensive, not the best quality. And then when I'm looking at yours, it's like, it's basically... You know, Airbnb, I can't, sometimes I have really bad quality too. So maybe Zeus gives me quality, right? Yeah. And quality listings, vetting, and uh, it's vetted and it's easier access, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Consistent experience. And, and, and again, what I've found is, you know, again, if you're going on an Airbnb trip for a day, for a weekend, maybe even for a week, you could take a little bit of risk. If something doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. 
our product, it's 30 day plus. We're not a short term rental company. And so we're geared towards people who are going somewhere for a month, three months, six months. And then when you're staying for that long, you actually really, you want the home to be comfortable and like to work. And if something goes wrong, you can call someone and expect them to, to like respond and fix. And so, yeah, that that's one of our big value props is that we provide this consistency. We are targeted for longer term stays. And then, you know, our homes are really well designed and thought out. We do a lot of research about how do we make the home comfortable and so on. Got it. And I'm looking at the, so it looks like you haven't rolled out to all the states yet, right? Or cities? No, we still have a lot of expansion to do. Got it. Okay. Sounds good. And so a lot of people listen to this, you know, have marketing questions. So I'm assuming SEO is a, a big piece of it, but what else is working in terms of customer acquisition? So we do get a bunch of organic traffic. And I think early on when we started this business, it is a marketplace if you think about it, right? Like as in residents are booking, we've got homes. Generally, I feel like there was so much supply constraint where by that, I mean, there were way more people looking for high quality furnished housing than there was good supply that anytime we added homes to the platform, they just would get booked out. And honestly, it was for me, I was like, when we went from like a hundred homes to a thousand homes to 2000 homes, the demand just like scaled with the product. So it felt like it was supply creating its own demand. We do cross list on Airbnb. Obviously people find us there. We do do performance marketing. We, you know, we, people find us on Google. We do do retargeting on other platforms that works. But I think I would say the main thing for us was we really invested in, I call it the ops engine or basically the experience that someone has. And early on, you know, I was actually quite keen that when I started Zeus, I wouldn't just throw a whole bunch of money on like online spending. We didn't hire our first marketer till we got to 100 employees. We grew through word of mouth. So the thinking was, if I give someone a five-star stay, they'll tell their friends, they'll book again, they'll extend. And that's really how we grew is just we hit the mark on service and often, you know, way exceeded expectations. And then that allowed us to just grow. And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we had a bit of a B2B focus. So we had a corporate sales team. So we'd hit up all these companies that maybe have intern programs or they're relocating employees. And we're like, look, this will be a way better experience for employee than putting them up in a hotel. And, you know, no one after about, I don't know, five days or a week in a hotel, you just, it gets really uncomfortable. So those were some of the early strategies we used to scale. Got it. Yeah. I'm looking at some of these days. I'm like, for the price I paid for that hotel, I, I can get like a freaking four bedroom on the beach, 2000 square feet, way better deal. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, I mean, let, let's talk about the pandemic for a second. So how did you guys reset, you know, during that, how did you guys kind of dance around it? Yeah, it was challenging early on. We created one metric that we cared about and that was just occupancy. So from March to April, we went from about 85% to the the trough was 45%. And then by the end of April, we got back up to 65. And then it increased by about 7% each month. So I think into May, we got to 72. June, I think it was like 79, 80. And then by July, we were close to 85. So we just had this mindset of where can we find demand? The business travel went, you know, it stopped. The technology travel stopped. International travel stopped. But we saw in the healthcare industry, there were a lot of traveling nurses that had to go to parts of the country where you know they had a labor shortage. So we housed them. Then students, when campuses were closed, dorms were closed, students were displaced, we housed them. Then these critical industries like infrastructure and construction, there was travel there. We diversified into that. And then also just people wanting to, I guess, socially distance, like maybe from roommates or maybe from their family if they got sick. So we just like had this like 
maniacal focus on how do we get our occupancy up. And then once we got the occupancy stable, then we started like, you know, figuring out what's the plan now, what's the strategy now, et cetera. Got it. Love it. And how was your psyche during that time? It was a roller coaster. The second half of March was definitely the low point. When the stock market crashed, we didn't know how dangerous this pandemic was. It felt like every day there was just a lot of bad news coming my way. All these big contracts were getting canceled. We just saw all this revenue disappear. We had to refund our customers so much. And then there was a moment as well where I remember I just found that belief where I kind of said to myself, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to decide that we're going to get through this. I don't know where that belief came from, to be honest. And I was like, if we decide we're going to get through this as a company, we will. If we decide this is the end, we're going to die. That'll probably happen. The the other interesting thing is sometimes when your back's against the wall, you just have so much like clarity and focus because you're like, I just have to do this one thing. You don't get like, I don't know, the startup debates and faffing around kind of that can happen. It's just like, all right, I wake up. I know what I got to do today. Do it. And, And then we just rallied and we built momentum. Yeah. But as I said, there was just this moment where somehow from inside, this voice said, you're going to make it through. Just do it. Got it. I love that. And so just to confirm again, you guys refocused everything on one metric. And every time you guys woke up in the morning, it was just that one metric. Let's go. Right. Yeah. And then once we hit that metric, once we got it to where we wanted to to get it to, it was the next metric Mm -hmm. and then get that one to where we need to go. And then like that. That sounds really helpful, right? Are you guys still using that mindset right now? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, obviously I see all the company metrics. We look at the demand. We look at how well we're operating. I mean, the other big challenge that we had was we cut our operations team by about 70%. So we used to have about a hundred people in the operation side of the house and we cut it down to 30, I think. We also reduced the size of the portfolio by, but not like by that much, by 70%. So all of a sudden that same team or you know, a fraction of that same team had to manage a way larger portfolio. So we had to like revisit how we ran all of our ops. And again, like there was a safety kind of angle to it. It's like, we don't want to put our employees at risk. We don't want to put residents at risk, but we are a property manager. We have to go to these homes and clean them and, and maintain them and all of that. So that was the other part where we're like, okay, let's stabilize. Like, like let's just get this back to a good level and then start improving. And then Just recently, I I was looking and our metrics are back to pre-pandemic levels in terms of just the customer satisfaction or issue resolution time, that sort of thing. Got it. Cool. So working towards wrapping up here, I think two or three more questions from my side. What is your favorite business book? I think now I'd probably say Seven Powers. It's Mm -hmm. It's a strategy book. It's basically just a way of thinking about like how you can develop moats for your business. And he just goes through the seven. It's stuff like economies of scale, network effects, brand, having a cornered resource, et cetera. And I think when you're talking with your company and you're just like, this is our strategy, this is how we're going to be really defensible. It gives you a good good sort of set of common set of language to use. Great. Sounds like a very evergreen book. What are you consuming each day to kind of just get better, right? So it could be certain newsletters, certain podcasts that you listen to, et cetera. I've started following Balaji Srinivasan's tweets and his podcast quite Closely, I mean, I, I always followed him, but he was the first one, I think, really, who cottoned on to how big the pandemic was going to be. And just by following him, like in January, February of last year, I was like, oh, no, this is going to be a thing. And I felt like it gave me a bit of a heads up. I'd probably say that. And then I, I love just reading, I guess, like the history, kind of the history of the 
technology industry and learning about other businesses. Because I do think whilst things may not like repeat in the exact same way, there's often many parallels with, you know, new platforms as they're trying to get launched or, you know, competitive dynamics, et cetera. So I do think early on, I, I wasn't necessarily a big believer in that. But now I think the more sort of historical business books I read, the more sort of patterns I can think of that I can latch onto when we're discussing our own business or just, you know, ideas on how to solve challenges. Love it. All right. Favorite business tool? I think Slack. I mean, when you can build all of the integrations into it, and especially now we've become a fully distributed remote company, it's a really powerful tool. Did you kill your office lease? Yeah, we did. Did you have like a multi-year agreement there? Yeah, we did. Wow. So we had to pay like a break fee and stuff like that. But we had offices in New York, DC, in Seattle, in LA, and we got out of all of them. Wow. Amazing. All right. Well, Colvier, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? They can find me on Twitter. My handle is cool. That's spelled K-U-L. Awesome. Well, that's nice and short. All right, Colvier, thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.